Angela. Let's take our Bibles this morning. Let's have Genesis chapter 8. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 8 this morning, <clears throat> and <clears throat> excuse me, let's begin reading from verse 1, Genesis chapter 8, verse 1 this morning, it says, And God remembered Noah, and every living thing, and all the cattle that was with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep, and the windows of heaven were stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters returned from off the earth continually, and after the end of a hundred and fifty days, the waters were abated. And in the ark rested in the seventh month of the seventeenth day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. And let's just open a word of prayer. Dear Lord, now we Father, we thank you, Lord, uh, once again for uh, the opportunity of being together. Lord, coming and, and spending some time uh, gathered around your word. We pray that you bless our time this morning, that, Lord, you would undertake. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'll, uh, you would give me wisdom and guidance this morning. You would empower me through the Spirit, that, Lord, uh, it would be your words and your thoughts, that, Lord, you would help me speak clearly. And, Lord, I pray that it would be a blessing this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, refresh us, uh, challenge us, bless us through your word. And may, Lord, you be honored and glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, last Sunday we uh, finished looking at chapter 7. And we saw that the ark was finally completed. And Noah and his family were called by God to enter in to the ark as the judgment was about to begin. And so they, in faith, obeyed. They entered into the ark and we saw that God shut the door. Uh, God sealed them in and basically... Uh, protected them from the judgment that was to come. And of course, it sealed it to those outside as well. Their opportunity had passed. And the judgment now came upon the earth that was uh, poured out by God in the form of this flood, uh, the flood upon the whole earth. And we talked about the fact that uh, to accomplish this, the Lord brought the two bodies of water back together. And we talked about how in Genesis chapter 1, on day two of creation, God had separated the waters below and the waters above, the firmament, the, the atmosphere. And so here, God brings those two bodies of water back together again. Uh, the water canopy above is condensed in the form of this torrential rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And the waters below the earth in those great reservoirs are now released as the earth is broken up and, and they spew forth. Upon the earth, and we saw that back in chapter 7, verse 11. Let's just read that. Uh, chapter 7, verse 11, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And so it's a time of great upheaval upon the earth. We talked about how with the, the breaking up of the fountains, there would have been great earthquakes. There would have been uh, volcanic eruptions and explosions as well as the earth, uh, its crust is broken apart and the water is spewing forth. That's a time of great upheaval. And by the time these two bodies of water are brought back together, the earth is covered by 15 cubits above the tallest mountain, which is 6.7 meters. And so the result is that all who didn't enter the ark perish. And we sort of concluded with that last week in verse 23. It says that every 
living substance was destroyed. Everything that didn't enter into the ark dies. Everyone, all the animals, even the plant life is destroyed by this, this flood, the, the judgment of God. And chapter 7 ends with the words in verse 24. It says, And the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. For 150 days the earth is covered by water until God now acts and the waters begin to recede. And that's what's recorded for us here in chapter 8. We see the waters receding now after the flood. And first of all, this morning, we see that God remembers Noah. God remembers his servant Noah. Look there in verse 1. It says, And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. The very first thing we read as chapter 8 begins <clears throat> is those wonderful words, God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah and, of course, his family and the animals as well on the ark. He remembers them. Now, this is not to imply that somehow God had forgotten about them, you know, that God had put them in the ark and then he'd forgotten where he put them. He forgot about them for 150 days. That's not what this word means, okay? God can't forget anything. We know that. Now, God is omniscient. He knows all things, To forget something goes against his very character. And so it doesn't mean that he forgot about them. Uh, Rather, this word is the idea that God now pays attention to them. And God now acts to fulfill his word, his his promises that he'd made to Noah and his family. He promised to deliver them safely through the flood to the other side and establish them upon the earth. He promised that. And so God now acts to fulfill that promise. Now, the commentator Wearsby, he wrote writes this, he says, it means to pay attention to, to fulfill a promise and act on behalf of somebody. Morris writes this, he says, it's a Hebrewism, for began to act on their behalf. And so that's the point here. The point is that God now acts on behalf of Noah and those inside the ark. God now acts to fulfill his promise to them, his words to them. Now you think about it, for 150 days, Noah his family and all the animals, they've been on board the ark. And it probably hasn't been exactly a pleasant time for them. I mean, they've been tossed to and fro upon the waters of the flood during this time, during the torrential rain. And then uh, as the waters are increasing upon the earth, they've been tossed to and fro, uh, battered by the waves. It's probably not been an enjoyable experience at times for them. You know, they're probably on board the ark wondering when it's all going to come to an end. I'm sure they're wondering when, when are the waters going to start receding? When are we going to exit the ark and be able to once again stand upon dry ground? When are we going to be able to begin this new life? And so they're wondering. They're looking forward to that day. You know, the wonderful thing is that God hadn't forgotten about them, had he? You know, for that 150 days, God knew exactly where they were, as I said. God hadn't forgotten He knew where they were. He knew what they were going through. He knew how long they would go through it for. See, God had a perfect timeline, didn't he? God had a perfect schedule for this this event, for this worldwide flood. And it was all running according to God's plan, God's schedule. And so now in God's perfect timing, not a day sooner, not a day late, in God's perfect timing, God now remembers his servant Noah and God acts so that the waters now recede upon the earth. You know, there's a wonderful truth here, isn't there, for all of us to remember as believers. 
And that is that God hasn't forgotten about us. God hasn't forgotten about us. God knows where we are. God knows what we're going through. He knows how long we've been going through it. And God's timing is always perfect. And in his timing, he will act. You know, we know that God will keep his promises. He says that in his word. He, he tells us all these wonderful promises that he's given to us as believers. And God will keep his promises. You know, one of those that all of us have to look forward to if we're belie- believers, if we're Christians, is the return of Christ coming to take us home to glory. And he will keep that promise. He will keep that promise. He will remember us. He hasn't forgotten about us. And the same is true in our own individual lives. As we go through trials and struggles in this life, God hasn't forgotten about us. And in his perfect timing, he will remember us. He will act to keep his promises. He will be faithful to us as believers. And that's what we see here now in Genesis chapter 8. God remembers his servant Noah and God acts on his behalf. God acts now to make sure the waters retreat from the earth. And it says there in verse 1, it says, And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. And then in verse 2 it goes on and it says, The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. And so there's three specific actions that are mentioned here that God now does that bring about the retreating of the flood. It says that God stops the, wa- the sources of water. Okay, So those sources of water are now depleted. The waters below are stopped and the waters above. God stops the rain. Uh, now I know it says after 40 days and 40 nights that torrential rain stopped, but the indication may be that over the period of the rest of the time there's been showers, it's been raining at times. Okay, God stops these sources of water now. And it's the third thing is that God sends this wind, okay? this wind upon the face of the earth. Now, we've mentioned it before, but until now, there was no significant wind upon the earth. There's no air movement upon the earth because of the uniform temperatures that would have been upon the pre-flood world. Okay? You remember the, the canopy that we've, we've talked about numerous times above the earth? That canopy created that greenhouse effect that made sure the earth had that wonderful uniform, perfect temperature. And so there's no great air movements. Okay? You need changes in temperature to create that air movement. But now that that water canopy is basically gone, now you have these varying temperatures, and so now you have great air movements beginning upon the earth. And Morris writes this, he says, These would soon have been complicated by the earth's rotation." So that the present complex system of atmospheric circulations would finally be initiated. The early phases in particular would probably have been quite violent. With nothing but a shoreless ocean, these winds would generate tremendous waves and currents and vast quantities of water would be evaporated, especially in the regions of the equator. And so, basically, God now sends this wind okay, upon the earth, and it's a great wind. It's, it's a wind with a shoreless ocean. Okay? You can imagine the waves it would have whipped up upon the earth. And so this wind, this movement of the air, helps to dissipate the water upon the earth. It helps with evaporation. But, you know, that would have only accounted for a minor lowering of the water. You would have to have this wind for a very long time to get rid of all of this water that's upon the earth. 
And so there must be something else that takes place here. There must be something else that goes on here to help these waters quickly recede from the face of the earth. And in verse 3, we're told this. It says in verse 3, uh, And the waters returned from off the earth continually, and, at, and after the end of 150 days, the waters were abated. At the start of verse 3, it says, And the waters returned from off the earth continually. The words return from off here are the idea that the waters flowed off the earth. They flowed off the land. And then the Hebrew word translated continually, it carries the idea of speedily or with speed. And so the sense here is that the waters flowed continually and rapidly off the earth, off the the ground, revealing the dry ground below. And so the question is, where did the waters rapidly proceed to? Where are the waters continually, rapidly flowing towards? Where are they going? Well, Psalm 104 seemingly gives us the answer. Let's turn over there. Psalm 104 this morning. Psalm 104 begins uh, with... uh, an account, if you like, of creation, okay, the creation uh, period, that's verses 1 to 5. Then in verses 6 to 9, we have uh, verses that refer, refer to the flood. Okay, so let's read those verses. Verse 6, it says, Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy fun- thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys unto the place that thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. And so here we have uh, in Psalm 104, we have some verses referring to the flood. Uh, in verse 6, it talks about how, about how God covered the earth with the deep, okay, above the mountains, okay, it says that there in verse 6, Thou coverest it with the deep, as with a garment, the water stood above the mountains. Okay, clearly, referring to this worldwide flood, Noah's flood. And in verse 7, it says that God rebuked the waters and they fled. Okay, verse 7, At thy rebuke they fled, at the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. And so God rebuked them, okay, similar idea to verse 3 there in Genesis chapter 8, God rebuked the waters and they fled away, they're rapidly receding. Again, but where did they go to? Well, that's where verse 8 comes in. In verse 8 it says, They go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys, unto the place which thou hast founded for them. Now these words in the Hebrew can be translated a couple of ways because of the the arrangement of the words and when you look at the, the verbs and which verb goes with what. But it can also be translated here in Psalm 104 verse 8. These words can also be translated... The mountains go up. The valleys go down. And so it seems to be a reference to the fact that at this time, the mountains rose up and the valleys sunk down. And so you have this changing of the topography, a changing of the topography on the earth, which allows the waters to hastily now retreat to the lowest portions on earth. The earth, the places that have sunk down. Okay, which is why then in verse nine it says, "Thou hast set a bound for them." I'm sorry, thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over; they turn not again to cover the earth. 
they retreat to the lowest points, which of course is the oceans. They re retreat to those oceans which we now know, and they've remained there ever since. And that seems to be what's referenced here in, a Psalm, in Psalm 104. It's referencing this idea of changes to the topography of the earth's surface, which causes the retreating of the waters unto the place that God has designated for them. Now, an article from <coughs> Creation Ministries International explains it like this. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, clearly, what the Bible is telling us is that God acted to alter the earth's topography. New continental land masses bearing new mountain chains of folded rock strata were uplifted from below the globe-encircling waters that had eroded and leveled the pre-flood topography while large deep ocean basins were formed to receive and accommodate the floodwaters that then drained off the emerging continents. And then it goes on, it says, uh, in regards to how the ocean floor sank down and the mountains were lifted up, they write this, as the, o as the, o sorry, as the new ocean floors cooled, they would have become denser and sunk, allowing water to flow off the continents. Movement of waters off the continents into the oceans would have weighed down the ocean floor and lightened the continents, resulting in further sinking of the ocean floor as well as up, upward movement of the continents. The deepening of the ocean basins and the rising of the continents would have resulted in more water running off the land. The collision of the tectonic plates would have pushed up mountain ranges also, especially toward the end of the flood. And so hopefully we sort of gain an understanding there. But the whole idea here is that there is great change that take place to the topography of the earth. Okay? We said it last week, but the earth that Noah and his family entered into after the flood is a totally different place. It's completely changed. It looks nothing like what it did before the flood. And the whole topography of the earth's surface is changed as, as portions sink down and other portions raise up as the mountains are formed through the movement of all these earthquakes, all these volcanic eruptions, everything that took place. You know, we talked about it last time, but with the breaking up of the deep, basically, you know, the fountains of the deep, basically the earth's surface is already weakened, isn't it? You know, with that breaking up of the deep and allowing those fountains to break forth with all those earthquakes, those volcanic eruptions, the earth's crust is weakened already. There's weak points. And basically those weak points now collapse and you form new ocean beds which the water all rushes towards. And Morris makes a really interesting point here, an interesting suggestion, that the places where the crust collapsed were probably the places where those great reservoirs of water had previously been located. Okay, the land above probably collapsed into where those reservoirs were. You see, these, having been emptied of water, are probably now the weakest points on the earth's surface. You know, those great caverns that were once filled with water, they've now been emptied, and so there's a weakness there. And so it's likely that these are the places that collapse, and these are the places that form the basin of the new oceans, the oceans we now know. And what's interesting is that those reservoirs, where were they located? Most likely, they were located under the pre-flood continents. And so it's, it seems likely that the pre-flood continents are now the ocean floor, and what we're standing on is the ocean floor from before the flood. And so it makes a lot of sense. 
that the continents before the flood, they've sunk down, they're the ocean floor, and now what's risen up is those seas from before the flood, and that's the new continents, the new landmass. That's an interesting point. It helps explain too why we can't find any remnants of anything from before the flood. It's all under the ocean. It's gone, washed away. You know, it's a complete rearrangement of the Earth's surface, isn't it? It's a really interesting study. I spent a lot of time studying this this week, and I hope I've done some justice to it. Really interesting to study and to try and understand this and see how it all works. But it's wonderful to see that in the world today, we can see the evidence of this actually having occurred. Now, as you look around the world, there is evidence of this great rushing of the water off the continents, off the land, into the ocean basins. Morris writes this, he says, depending on topography, vast interior continental lakes would exist for a time and great rivers would form, scouring out great canyons rapidly. It is significant that all over the world, interior lakes and seas show evidence of much higher water levels in the recent past. Rivers also everywhere show that they once carried much greater quantities of water and sediment than they do at present. And that's the wonderful truth, isn't it? We look around the world, you look at every continent, and you see a similar thing. You see these, these inland seas which empty through great ca- canyons into the oceans. You see these canyons carved out. You see these rivers that have carved out massive gouges in the earth, and yet they're a tiny little trickle down at the bottom. These are caused because of the floodwaters rushing off the continents that are formed. And so as verse 3 declares back here in Genesis chapter 8, the waters returned off the earth continually. They flowed rapidly off the earth because the mountains were lifted up and the ocean floors sunk down. And so the waters were drained into the present day oceans and it's there that they've remained and be contained ever since. And so when someone says, you know, well, where's all the water for the flood? Where's all the water that supposedly flooded the earth during Noah's day? The answer is it's still there. It's in the oceans that exist today. You know, our planet's surface today is covered by 70% water. 70%. And if we were to lower the height of the mountains and raise up the ocean floors and basically level out the topography once again, there is more than enough water to cover the whole surface of the earth. In fact, there's enough to cover the earth's surface to a depth of 2.7 kilometers. And so there's more than enough water to cover the whole earth, just as God said, if indeed we raise things back up to what they were before the flood. That water is still there today. You know, it's clear here that God, as he remembers his servant Noah, he acts to drain the waters, to shape the earth, what it is today, what we know today. Great changes take place as the mountains rise up and the ocean floor sinks down. And it's upon one of these newly formed mountains that the ark now comes to rest. And so secondly, here this morning, we see God's patient servant. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 8, if you haven't already. Genesis chapter 8, and read with me verse 4. It says, And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat, And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. We're told now that in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark comes to rest upon the mountains of Ararat. Now, if you remember, the flood began on the seventeenth day of the second month. 
And so this is exactly five months after the flood began. Five months afterwards, the ark comes to rest upon the top of Mount Ararat. And if the months were 30 days long, which most commentators believe they would have been, 30 days long, that means it's 150 days exactly. Okay, 150 days since the flood began until the ark rests upon the top of Mount Ararat, or the mountain ranges there. And so at the very beginning of the rapid receding of the waters, remember we said the, ark, uh, the waters were upon the earth for 150 days before they receded? At the very beginning of that receding of the waters, the very first thing that happens is what? The ark rests upon Mount Ararat. That's interesting, isn't it? That's God's design. That's God's um, uh, provision. That's God acting here. You see, it's important that the ark stops and rests upon the mountain before the waters rapidly recede. It's important. Because otherwise, where's the ark going to go? It's going to go flowing along those great rivers out into the middle of the ocean. Okay? It's important that it stops, it rests upon the mountaintop. And so this is God acting once again. God is acting here, and God ensures that it rests upon this newly formed mountain. Okay? It's, it's resting safe there from the currents which are about to begin as the water recedes. And most identify this mountain range, of course, <clears throat> with the mountain range by the name Ararat today, okay, which is located uh, on the borders of Armenia and Turkey. Okay, that's where most people believe uh, this mountain range is. Uh, Morris writes this, he says, the Ararat region, including Mount Ararat itself, abounds in what is known as pillow lava, a dense lava rock formed under great depths of water. The mountain also includes a certain sedimentary formations containing marine fossils. It's interesting, isn't it? Mount Ararat, the very place where the ark supposedly came to rest, which, well, supposedly did come to rest, okay, it's God's word, where the ark did come to rest, was formed by a volcanic eruption under water. Okay, and you have these marine fossils there as well. And so the evidence is that this mountain range was formed during the flood. And there may well have been, uh, sorry, and, and in, indeed as you go around the world, you see the same thing in other mountain ranges too, don't you? You see evidence of uh, uh, marine life fossilized in mountains. How did it get there? During the flood, as these mountains were raised up. And so most people identify Mount Ararat as this mountain range over in Armenia and Turkey. And there have been reported sightings over the years, not just in the last century, but if you read uh, ancient writings as well, and if you read uh, things from medieval times, there's reported sightings of the ark, numerous of them. And so it would seem this is the correct location, okay? Um, but it seems like God lets someone see it, then God hides it away again, okay? That's just God. God knows what he's doing, okay? But it seems like this is the place. But regardless of exactly which mountain range it is, the point here is that God ensures it's resting, doesn't he? Okay, God ensures it's resting safe on the top of the mountain as the waters recede. But even now, you know, as, as the ark comes to rest upon the top of Mount Ararat, you notice that Noah doesn't rush out of the ark. Noah doesn't go, oh, well, we're here, we're safe, let's just quickly open the door and let's, let's exit. He doesn't rush anything. He's been inside the ark for 150 days. He's probably itching to get outside, but he doesn't rush to exit the ark. Instead, he continues to patiently wait upon the Lord. He continues to patiently wait for God's perfect timing to leave the ark and enter the new world that awaits. In verse 5, as we just read, it says the waters decrease continually. So the waters are continuing to go down. 
until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And so in the tenth month, tenth day of the month, the tops of the mountains are now visible. But he's still continually waiting. He still has an exit of the ark. He's still waiting upon the Lord. In verse 6 and 7, it tells us that he waits another 40 days. And then he sends out the raven. Let's read verse 6. It says, And it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from the face of the earth. And so he sends forth the raven. 40 days, okay? So he's, he's waited till the 10th month and the 10th day, and then he waits another 40 days. He sends out the raven. And the raven, of course, is a scavenger bird that's not, you know, it doesn't have any qualms about landing on carcasses of dead animals and whatever else that's floating in the ocean. He doesn't have any qualms about landing on debris. And so the raven doesn't come back. It's quite at home out upon the ocean, uh, the, the flood receding. But then in verse 8 and 9, of course, Noah then sends out a dove. Seven days later, verse 8, it says, And he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. And so he waits seven days. He sends forth the dove for the first time. And the dove, of course, unlike the raven, doesn't want to stay out upon the water, and so returns to the ark. It doesn't find anywhere to live. It doesn't find anywhere to dwell. <clears throat> a week later, Noah again sends out the dove for the second time. And it returns with signs of life. Look in verse 10. It says, And he stayed yet other seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came in to him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. So he sends the dove out the second time. This time it returns with the olive leaf. <clears throat> Signs that there is life. The plant life is beginning to grow once again. But obviously it's not enough for the dove to be content outside the ark. And so it returns. And again, after seven days, he sends out the dove for a third time. Verse 12, it says, And he stayed yet other seven days, and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more third time the dove is content. It's evidence that now life is established. There's plant life fully established. There's places for the dove to dwell and so it doesn't return to the ark. You know, now, Noah now knew. He now knew that the earth's surface was dry. It's able to support life. And so he removes the covering which seems to be a hatch on the, the upper deck. He removes this covering and he, he goes out to look for himself for the very first time and see this new world around him. Verse 13. So it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. And so he moves this covering, his hatch, and he, he looks for himself and he sees the ground. He sees that it's dry. He sees that you know, it's, it's getting to the place where he could exit. He's able to see the mountain that they're resting upon. And basically this means that it's now 314 days since the flood began. Okay, 314 days, that, that date given us there in verse 13, that came to pass in the 601st year, the first month, the first day of the month. Okay, it's 314 days since the flood began. And Noah finally 
exits, well, opens the hatch and has a look around. He, he looks around at the face of the ground and he sees that it's dry. He gets his first glimpse of the mountain that they're resting upon. Gets his first glimpse of the new plant life that's springing up all around. But even now, Noah doesn't rush outside the ark, does he? Even now. He doesn't rush outside. He continues to wait. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for the Lord. He's waiting for direction from God. Verse 14, it tells us that it finally comes. It says, in, on the second, sorry, in the second month, on the seven and twentieth day of the month, the earth was the earth dried, and God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every fowl and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. So verse 14 and 15, finally, finally now that the direction from God comes to exit the ark. Noah's been patient, patiently waiting. And it's on the 27th day of the second month that the command comes from the Lord to exit the ark. Now Noah had to patiently wait another 57 days. From the time that he opened that hatch and he saw the ground, he had to wait another 57 days before God said, all right, now it's time to exit. Patiently waits. And all up, they're on board the ark for 371 days. A year and a, a few days. They spent most of that time with no view of their surroundings, really. You know, maybe a little view through the window, but basically no view of what's going on. They're basically in there just waiting and trusting upon the Lord, trusting that God knows best, God knows what's happening, God knows where they are, and God's in control. And that in God's timing, He will bring them forth. And that, I think, really is the the point of the passage this morning. You know, that God remembers his servants, as we said in our first point, and our responsibility as his servants is to patiently wait upon him. Patiently wait for his direction, for his leading, his timing. As I said, Noah spent 371 days cooped up in the ark, and he continued to trust the Lord and trust in God all that time, and God proved to be faithful, didn't he? He kept his word. In God's timing, he acted, he removed the floodwaters. And in God's timing, he commanded Noah and his family to exit the ark safely into the new world. Now, likewise, we need to keep patiently waiting and trusting upon the Lord. Now, no matter what we're going through, no matter how long it may seem that we're going through that, how long it seems to be dragging on, God's aware of it. God knows what we're going through. He knows where we are and we're safe. We're in his care. We're safe, he's in control. We just need to, like Noah, be patient and realize that God will remember us. He will deliver us in his perfect time. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, this morning for, uh, Lord, Genesis chapter 8. Lord, a passage I'm sure we all know very well. We've heard the story many times. Lord, I hope this morning we've gained a deeper understanding of exactly what takes place here. And Lord, an understanding of the, the wonderful truth that you remember your servants. And Lord, we just have to patiently wait upon you. Lord, may you bless now as we close in Jesus' name. Amen.